Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. I'll be reading from two passages this morning. All right. All right. The first one is Luke 24, 24 through 27. Some of those who were with us when we went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then the second one is Leviticus 23, verses 1 through 2. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, These are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands. Now that my daughter's home for the summer, I have somebody that I can go to last minute when I forget to ask somebody to read the passage. So that is fantastic. Uh, All right, good morning. Everybody doing all right? Mm. Okay. Uh, kiddos, uh, we do have EGC this morning, correct? Somebody tell me yes or no. Where's Lisa? There she is. All right. So EGC, third, fourth, fifth grade, we're going to catechize you and train you in those ways. And then first and second grade goes to Elevate. And uh, hey, wondering why my son is leaving. All right. Everybody else, we're going to be in here and I hope you're doing well and I know that summer is not officially till like June 21st which is also my anniversary longest day of the year those are separate entities in and of themselves they are not together in any way shape or form um, but technically I mean it's, it's the it's June right it's the week after Labor Day um, uh, and we're starting a new Labor Day Memorial Day what there yeah Sorry. Uh, we're, we're starting a new sermon series this morning. Uh, we just finished up with the Apostles' Creed, and I hope that was helpful for you. Uh, and this morning we're starting a sermon series, Rhythms and Feasts. Uh, and again, uh, well, for as long as I can remember, I have loved baseball. I love baseball. And, um, and I, you can judge me all you want. You can tell me that's boring, and I will tell you how you're wrong. Uh, and it's totally cool. Uh, but I'd play catch with my dad when I was really young. Uh, when I was in elementary school, my friend Jeff, he lived across the street, and we would throw the ball back and forth across the street. My dad, when I was really young, my dad was a little bit disappointed in me because of how I threw the ball, and I think he wondered about my, you know, some of my capabilities. And then we put a glove on my right hand, and I started to throw with my left hand, and all of a sudden he was like, okay, this is much, much better. Um, and so I found out I was left-handed. We all did. Uh, and it was so much easier. And then uh, my friend Jeff and I, we'd throw the ball back and forth across the street, and we'd throw it just out of range 
where we'd have to dive for it in the, in the yard. Anybody else do that? And we'd have to dive for it, and I mean, we were Ozzy Smith, right? Um, and every play was just like Ozzy. The only problem was, being left-handed, I found out that I could never be Ozzy Smith because they won't let left-handers play shortstop, which I think is ridiculous, but whatever. Um, so uh, we used to do that all the time, and uh, we had the, we had the, the um, I don't know, what do you call it, like the mullet house, right? It's short in the front and then deep in the back with the walkout basement. Um, and so we had the concrete wall from the foundation. And so I'd throw a ball against the wall in the back for like hours at a time. And I would short hop and I would dive and I learned how to backhand and all, like golf ball, hard rubber ball, you name it. And I, I loved baseball and fielding was my thing. I could field. Uh, hitting was a different Hitting was a different ball game for me. Uh, I did not want to get hit. <laughs> I did not want to get hit by the ball, uh, and that scared the mess out of me. And so it didn't matter how much I trained. And I did batting lessons, and I did all this kind of stuff. Uh, I went to coaches. I would hit off the batting tee. But when a ball is coming at you, it's easy to break away from the fundamentals. It's easy to step out. Right, Ryan? Yeah. It's easy to step out. It's easy to turn your shoulder in. And so now I'm coaching my son's little league team, which is fun, uh, where you have to, uh, everything for me came from instinct. So I'm having to teach them fundamentals, which I don't know fundamentals. I didn't, I like, I went with gut and it worked. But, um, but I feel like I'm always overwhelming them when they stand at the plate. And I'm always telling my son, you know, keep your weight back. Don't lunge after the ball, especially on slow pitches. Don't swing slow wait for it, swing hard, uh, you know, um, don't step out, keep your head in there, don't swing out of your shoes, all this stuff I'm trying to, and I feel like it's overwhelming, and you're just like, can I, can I, just, can I just hit the ball? Uh, and it can be overwhelming, because there's so many things that can go on in the swing. But when you put all these things together, when you practice these things, when you see this sweet swing t come together, and this is the sweetest swing to ever exist in history right here. And you see weight balanced. You see that back foot turned, ball out in front of the plate. You know he's going to smack that on the sweet part of the bat. Look at his eyes. His eyes are on the ball. His hands are getting extended. He's following through. And I'm telling you, it's just a thing of beauty. And that... That is going to be, actually, his record-setting eighth home run, uh, uh, eighth home run in, a, uh, in consecutive games on that pitch. But it's just a thing of beauty to me. It's a dance, and I love it. Um, yeah, and this is summer. This is summer for me. And this is why I love baseball. This morning, we're starting a new series uh, for the next couple of months. We're going to look at the feast that God commands his people to celebrate. And it's found in the 23rd chapter of Leviticus. And I know what you're thinking. Good idea. Good idea. Let's, in summer, when people are kind of chill, let's go through Leviticus. I know. All the church growth gurus, they're like, you know, you hit Leviticus and you've got the people hooked. Um, so we don't care about that. Uh, but... I think it's fascinating. 
I think it's interesting. And we're going to go through these studies, and, and we're going to... We're going to look at the depth of these uh, feasts and festivals. And then for the summer at Refuge, the disciplines, the practices of life that we want to focus on in the summer is the one anothering one another. Now, those are all in the New Testament when Jesus tells us and Paul tells us how do we one another one another. Teach, encourage, uh, uh, support, nurture, all of those things that we do for one another. But I think these feasts and festivals can be helpful in doing that. And there's a great time to gather as GCs. Uh, as friends, as neighbors, as family, all of that stuff, to practice these things. Um, and I think it's going to be a fascinating study. And as we walk through them, you're going to feel like there's a whole lot of technicalities in here. You're going to feel like, all right, do this, don't do this. Keep your weight back, watch out, don't, jump, don't lunge. You got to do this. In fact, talking to my, uh, talking to my rabbi friend, uh, which I think this is amazing, just in case, because it's not definitive on what time actually Sabbath begins and what time it ends. And so just to make sure that they're following the rules accordingly, they actually, Shabbat lasts 25 hours. And I laughed. And, she's la and I think she was kind of like, why are you laughing? <laughs> I shouldn't be. Um, because when does sundown begin? Does it begin when the, when, the, when the moon comes up? Does it begin when the sun below, goes below or when the stars come out? So just to be safe. And so there's going to feel like there's a lot of technicalities to this. But when we see what the fullness of this is, when Jesus tells us at the end of Luke, I'm the point of these things. When they come together as practices and disciplines, I mean, it, it can be, I think it can be a thing of beauty. And so we're going to spend the summer going through these different feasts and festivals. So here's what I want to do. I really need to get bigger type font. I mean, it's accessible to me. I just don't do it. Um, so here's what I want to go through this morning for our time together. I want us to understand the importance of these feasts. I want us to understand the importance of rhythms. Not only just rhythms in general, but God designed the world to work in such a way and gave us rhythms of how things go and how we operate. I want us to understand uh, how God designed the world, but also um, some default rhythms that we have that are not good. Some ways that God designed the world for rhythms that are good and some things that we do, liturgies, practices, uh, some of the things that we do that are not good. Um, I also want to give you a general understanding of the book of Leviticus, uh, so hang tight for that. And then I also want to look at how the substance of, this, of these all belong to Christ. And so we can begin to see how it transforms these feasts into absolute beauty. Uh, I also want to keep this to a, to a depth that is manageable so we're out in time for the carnal game. Um, they play tonight. Uh, all right. So the first thing that we look at, the Bible reveals God to us. Um, there was a, there's a popular saying of the Bible is basic instructions before leaving earth. And I want you to take that and never say that ever, ever, ever. The Bible is not a book of instructions. The Bible is the story of God. And it does culminate in the person and work of Jesus. But it shows us how God works with people how he has revealed himself. It tells us that every Sunday when we gather how we were created good, how we rebelled against God, how God didn't leave us in that, but he came back to the garden, he made himself known, and he formed and fashioned a people. Not only is he redeeming this people and making them new and making them agents in this world of his goodness and the way the world was designed to be, but also one day he will make all things new. And we are like forerunners to that. Followers of Jesus, we're saying the new kingdom is coming, and one day all things will be made new, which is why we practice justice and righteousness and compassion and mercy. Um, this is the way God designed the world to be. Uh, it's not a book of instructions. It's the story of God. 
when we look at creation, creation is not, the Genesis account of creation has nothing to do with how many years it took God to create or how many days. It has to do with a God of order and structure. He creates dominions, the skies, the seas, the day, the night. And then he gives function to those. He puts kingdoms, he, puts, uh, he, he fills them, the sun and the moon. And he puts birds in the sky and fish in the sea and land. Uh, he puts animals on the land and the vast amounts of land. And he gives order and structure to this dominion, to these, to these various uh, dominions. And then what we see uh, with the creation of mankind, um, that before sin enters the world, God gives us the garden. He puts us in a garden to work it and keep it. So he gives us a vocation. He gives us a job to do. He gives us a command to obey, which is good because it demonstrates trust. A lot of times we're like, ah, don't tell me about commands. But at times, I am, I've had this discussion with a, a guy, uh, this was a long time ago, and I'm going off script, so this is going to be, well, he was from Germany, and that was back when I used to fantasize about like driving on the Autobahn, and where there's no speed limits, right? And he said, well, here's the deal, though. He said, in, in Germany, you put no speed limits on there, people drive at a reasonable speed. He said, in America, speed limits are more like a suggestion. And I was like, all right, fair point. We don't do well without limits. Um, that was my point. So God gives us a, a, a law, an obedient, a, a, a law, a command to obey. And he says, this is the command. Enjoy everything that I've made for you to enjoy. But don't eat of this tree. And then we do our best three-year-old imitation. And we're like, this tree? I'd like to eat from this tree. God gives us an opportunity to obey and trust him. And then God gives us a relationship to cultivate, to learn how to depend on each other, to work together in harmony. And he looks at all of this and he says, it's good. He gives a pattern to work and rest. He gives a, a pattern to relationship. He gives structure to all of the world around us, each according to their kind. But then there's another pattern that's going to emerge. And this starts to emerge in Genesis 3. And this is a pattern that involves sin. It involves um, disobedience. Now, here's the thing about sin. Uh, we often talk about sin as simply rebellion against God. And it is, it is a rebellion against God, but it's so much more complex to, than that. It's so much more than just like, I don't care what you say. It's not just, I'm going to do my own thing, but sometimes it's born out of fear. It's born out of, um, uh, it's born out of guilt the depths of sin is more than just rebellion. Sometimes it's hurt. Sometimes it's self-protection, bitterness. And it's a whole lot of a heap and helping of shame. Works a lot in there. Uh, and so sin is very complex. And the pattern that we see also emerging in these early stages is that God provides beauty. And God, provi God provides and he gives beauty, and he gives restoration, he gives reconciliation, he comes to the rescue, and he brings them back to a place that is good, and gives and recommissions them to go about the work, and then humans come along and mess it up again. And we don't trust, and we don't do what God tells us to do. We put our trust in other systems, we put our trust in other things besides God, we put our uh, trust in uh, making treaties with other nations, and then we sin again, and then God comes back, 
rescues his people, cleans them, reconciles them, provides beauty and meaning and purpose and all that again, and then they sin, and the pattern just goes on and on. The world is designed, it's designed with patterns and rhythms and order and structure, and Scripture gives us insight into that. Now, here's what I'm not talking about, all right? That this idea of the world is designed with patterns and structures. I'm not saying that, like, if you read the Bible every fourth letter and then you put those together in a sentence, you're going to find out the secret of the universe. Okay? I'm not, this is not like a Bible code type of thing. These are rhythms and structures of how we were designed to live in every part of life, communally, personal obedience, corporate obedience, the way society was meant to be. There is a design and there's a structure. And when we trust God, <clears throat> we operate in the way that we should operate. And, uh, and again, the way sin works us, sin uh, works in whatever means, by whatever means necessary to get us from trusting God. And I've used this before. Sin is not just this rebellion against God. And God is not up there just like the cosmic killjoy, where he's like, everything fun that you want to do, I'm going to make bad. That's not how sin works. The nature of sin, I've said this before, the nature of sin is, is like this. If God, I find this helpful and you may not. Um, if God were to say, I command you to eat ice cream at every meal, the nature of sin is such where we would go, Every meal? Ugh. Ice cream again? Can we please have some broccoli? Right? That's how sin works. It takes good things and distorts them. And so when our hearts don't trust God and we're turned against God, that's how sin works. So the, the story of Scripture shows over and over and over again. God designs. God gives a way that the world ought to be. God redeems, restores his people when they mess up. He provides grace and mercy and reconciliation. And then to Adam, to Abraham, to all of Israel, God is faithful to his part of the covenant. And then the people of God over and over and over again come in and turn to lesser gods. Does that make sense? All right. So that brings us to the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus, it's the third book in the Torah. The Torah is the first five books of the Bible. It's called the law. Uh, now, I said earlier <clears throat> that the Bible is not an instruction manual. However, Leviticus is kind of an instruction manual. We have a holy God, a God that is perfect in righteousness, in behavior, in justice, in uh, mercy. All of these things, God is perfect. And he is making a covenant with or entering into a marriage relationship with a people that, is, that are rebellious, that are fearful, that are sinful, that have turned against him, that he'll t say one thing and they'll do another. Uh, literally in the middle of the mar marriage ceremony that God is performing with Moses where he's entering into the covenant, God's people are already making an idol. It's like they're looking at one of the bridesmaids and kind of like, hey, like during the marriage ceremony. And what's worse is it's like they're calling the bridesmaid by God's name. I mean, there's, it's complicated. But they literally are making an idol while Moses is having this marriage ceremony with God. And so we get to Leviticus at the foot of Mount Sinai, and God is saying, here's how this has to work. If you, a sinful, stubborn, rebellious people, are going to be in relationship with me, a holy, perfect, just, and right God, there's some things that need to happen. And so Leviticus gives... These, these instructions, and the instructions are for the priests, and the priests fulfill two roles. The priests are, uh, they represent the people before God, 
And then they represent God to the people. So it's a high moral calling. There's things that they have to, there are rituals and cleansing that they have to go through. There's a certain lineage that they have to be a part of, and Leviticus gives us that. And then Leviticus also gives us that Moses is writing these rituals to go through. There are praise offering rituals. There are offerings of penance and repentance, rituals that they have to go through, sacrifices that they have to make. And then in Leviticus 23, there's this list of this command of feasts and festivals that Israel is to practice to remember that they are the people of God and what God has done. And so they practice these feasts and festivals. There's six of them that are on an annual basis, and one is every week. And they practice remembering their identity. They practice remembering what God has done, who they are, how they have been saved, what that means for how they interact with the rest of the world, and how they are to be generous, and how they're to image God, and, and all of these things. Um, so Leviticus 23, 1 through 2. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, These are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. And these are the rhythms and practices that God gives his people to remember and reflect and repent often. And so it starts with their six annual feasts, one, one weekly feast. The weekly feast is called Shabbat or Sabbath. I'm just going to give you a quick rundown before we, go, uh, uh, before we go through these all this summer. You have Shabbat or Sabbath to rest and cease from labor. Now, you're going to see this a lot. This is another thing. What the, the biggest command in Scripture to the people of God is to rest, to take a day to rest. Now, you want to know how messed up we are? We fight that. Ugh. I have to rest? And then six days a week, oh, what I wouldn't give to just rest. Right? That's the nature of sin. And so every week to rest, to cease from labor, remember that God is the one that has provided. God establishes this in creation. It's part of his creation order. Six days you will labor, one day you will rest. God rests. He rests in the completed work. Um, but God also rests and gifts this to his people because when, when God rescues them, they're slaves in Egypt. And the labor on, that they are put under is just horrendous. And so God rescues them and says, I'm going to give you a day of rest to cease from labor. Imagine what that sounds like and feels like. But then it goes further than that. In Deuteronomy, God says, not only is this rest for you, but this rest is for anyone. Lest you gain power, people of Israel, this rest is not just a gift to you, it's also a gift through you. Your servants rest. Your family rests. Your animals rest. The land rests. This is my gift to you and through you. And he says in Deuteronomy, because remember, you were slaves in Egypt. And so what God, history is filled with um, people who have faced uh, oppression, who then rise up and overtake and then become the oppressors. I mean, history has this, this repetition often. 
And what God says to his people is, may that never be with you. And Sabbath, Shabbat, is that enforced. Now, spoiler alert, it did happen with them. It did happen with them. Praise God for his mercy. We'll get to that another time. That's Shabbat. In the spring, we have Passover. Uh, this is the celebration, um, and we'll do this in a couple weeks. We have a Seder meal. We're going to kind of walk through that. And this, what this does is it commemorates when God defeated the Egyptian gods with ten plagues, each one systematically kind of embarrassing these gods. And then the last one, the most powerful god in Egypt, the bright and morning star, the Pharaoh himself, that God pronounces judgment on the household and takes the firstborn. But he tells, to his, he tells his people, I want you to put blood over your doorposts, the blood of a lamb over your doorposts, and the angel of judgment will pass over you. And so the Seder is the reminder of God's mercy and God's deliverance of his people. And then there's the harvest feast of the first fruits, the counting of the Omer, and this is a harvest feast, and this is 50 days counting uh, the goodness of God and, and trusting that he will provide for the harvest. And then at the end of the first fruits, uh, after 50 days of counting the Omer, it's time to celebrate the Shavuot. Uh, this is the Feast of Weeks, which is also called Pentecost. Praising God for his provision through the, in the harvest. Um, you count the Omer for 49 days, and on the 50th day is a celebration of the giving of the Torah. And so it's a celebration that God gave us the law, that God made himself known. And then Pentecost, for Christians, is not just the giving of the law, it's the writing of the law on our hearts. It's the giving of the Holy Spirit. And we'll get into all of, the, we'll get into, uh, to all of how this ties in together. Um, and by the way, uh, it is also the end of Eastertide in the Christian calendar. Um, and so these decorations will be going away. We'll be entering common time where we've spent 50 days celebrating uh, the resurrection of Jesus. And we continue to celebrate, but now it's kind of that, okay, we live this out now. What does the church look like? How do we operate in, as the people of God uh, with, if the resurrection is true? So that'll be happening then. And then in the fall, usually in September, is the Feast of Trumpets, uh, also called Rosh Hashanah. Uh, this is the new year, um, and uh, the Jewish new year, which functions, it's a time much like our own, a time of reflection and repentance, and you look back over the previous year, and where did I remember and practice the presence of God, and where did I fail to remember the presence of God, and so it's a time of repentance, but there's also a little sweet treat that we're hoping to do. Uh, it's apples and honey, and we're, we're, we're not sure yet if we're going to risk the honey part. Uh, we, may just, we may just get honey crisp apples, God's goodness, and and a blessing to mankind and on the ingenuity where you can combine those things. Um, but where you taste the sweetness of God. And so it's a prayer for the new year of the sweetness of God's presence and that his presence would go with us into the new year and a, and a prayer for faithfulness and success in the coming year. And then after uh, Rosh Hashanah, there's 10 days of repentance in the new year, which leads to Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the highest of holy days. And this is the one where the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and make his offering before the Lord. And the huge celebration that would come if the offering was accepted and the people of God had the favor of God because of his goodness and mercy. Uh, and so that comes up at the end of the year. Sorry, this is pulling on my ear. Um, 
That comes up at, uh, at the end of our year. It's actually 10 days into the new year, uh, and this is called Rosh Hashanah. Um, and then, I'm sorry, not Rosh Hashanah, that's Yom Kippur. Uh, and it's an immense day of celebrating. Uh, and, and all of these things carry with it not only the celebration of God's goodness, but if God has provided for you, then you are to give generously from that. And then finally, at the end of the harvest season, it's a time to remember when God provided for his people in the wilderness. And again, you enjoy the feast of the provision of the harvest, and then you also give generously. Uh, and this is called the Feast of Booths. <clears throat> uh, also called Sukkoth, and you build a sukkah, and you dwell outside for the week, for seven days, and you eat your meals outside. And there's some rules and rituals that go along with that, uh, but um, I've also gotten, uh, and I will tell you this, uh, my friend Rory, we're going to post a YouTube video that she and I did an interview on, on all these things, and she, she's like, if your people want to go to any of these celebrations, tell me, and I'll put them together with different congregations where they can go to these things. Um, and so I'm in on the Feast of Booths because it's like, I, it's a feast. It's really good. So they all have feasts and we've done, we've done Shabbat with their family and it's, it's amazing. So <clears throat> that's the feast. Now you might be thinking, okay, why should we celebrate these? Why should we, why should we learn about these? Why should we even, dare I say, go about practicing these feasts? We're not Jewish. Uh, and though this is a part of the same story, well, let me give you a couple thoughts on that, and we'll close with this. Um, the first, and probably the most important, these feasts, we believe, followers of Jesus, this is what we believe, that these feasts are ultimately about Jesus, and they ultimately point us to Jesus. And when you see the correlations of how these play out with the events of the life of Jesus, it's mind-blowing. It's mind-blowing. And these aren't, I, I better stay away from that. Uh, these are good. Uh, and, and the way that these point out when these feasts are taking place and what Jesus does. But we see just how much they point us to Jesus and how Jesus, like, fulfills these. He doesn't, he doesn't negate them. He doesn't move them out of the way. He fulfills them. And so on the Sabbath, Jesus is our rest. And unfortunately, we don't remember that very well. He is our miraculous deliverance out of, the hand, out of the land of slavery. He is the blood of the Passover lamb. He is the atonement for our sins. Paul tells us that these feasts, these are not about keeping the letter of the law, but the substance of these belongs to Christ. And so we're not, we don't celebrate these feasts in order to be accepted by God, but we can celebrate them now because in Christ we have been accepted by God. And this is a reminder of who we are, what Christ has done, and who we should be in response to that. And at the end of Luke, uh, Jesus following his resurrection, <clears throat> resurrection lets us in on a little secret that this is all about him. And he says to the people that are, that are at the tomb, Oh, foolish, foolish ones, <clears throat> slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer uh, these things and enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And so he began to just unload. All of this ultimately is about me. 
And this ought to produce in us, if we're a follower of Jesus, this ought to produce in us a deep and humble and abiding joy. Because here's the thing. Leviticus gives us all these rules and rituals and sacrifices that have to be done because we are sinful and rebellious and trust other things. So here's the list of all the things held against us. Here's how many details you have to go through if you are going to accomplish your own sanctification, your own justification. Leviticus does a really good job of telling us how how sinful we are. And how a sinful people could possibly dwell with a holy God. But then we come along to the New Testament and we see, and if you want to read Leviticus with awe and wonder, look at it and go, Jesus fulfilled every single one of these. He is the perfect high priest. He is the perfect atoning sacrifice. He is the perfect praise offering. And so it's not about following the details so that we'll be accepted by God. It's about seeing just how much Christ has done. Now, here's the deal. If you look at this from an academic perspective, it might produce in you a bit of arrogance. This kind of, uh, well, actually. Technically, what Jesus fulfills here. And it may lead with arrogance. If you're a guilty type person, right, and you read Leviticus, and you're like, all it does is just heap guilt on you. Oh, man. It might produce in you just an overwhelming sense of guilt. I have to repay all of this. I know what you said, Jesus, but I, this is on me, and I got to do this, and I got to do this, and I got to do this. And it may produce in you just a sense of obligation. But here's good news. If you are a desperate person, if you are a person who wonders, how in the world could I be accepted by a holy God? If you are poor in spirit, if you are meek and hungry and thirsty for righteousness, what this tells you is that in Christ, you are loved. You're not good. You're loved. And that's way better. Leviticus reveals just how sinful we are in all the different ways. And then Christ comes in fulfilling those and shows us just how deeply loved and covered we are. So that's first and foremost. That's why we, I want to celebrate these feasts together. But the second thing, few cultures have as many rhythms and healthy practices that are, that are God-centered liturgies, really, as, as the Jewish people. We have, we have our... Uh, liturgies and practices. We have our annual seasons, right? Uh, we have hockey season, which goes through most of the year. Uh, we have fall is for football, summer is for baseball. Um, we have base. We have when we got married. I got a list from my wife of like how we like what our expectations for holidays. Um, you know, we have all these liturgies that we celebrate, uh, and most of them. <laughs> God bless us as Americans. We just kind of steal holidays from other people and use them as excuses to drink. Um, and uh, we even have Christian holidays, which if anybody tells you, like, the, iron the irony of all these, the Christian holidays, Halloween really is the only one that actually originated as a Christian holiday, uh, and that's the one we all get uptight about. Um, 
So, uh, but we have these liturgies in practice, but few people, few peoples practice these rhythms um, as, as significantly and as well as the Jewish people. Um, and, I mean, think about it. The primary way that God distinguished the Jewish people from all the other nations in an agrarian society where if you don't hunt or fish or gather, you don't eat. And what do they do? Every week, they cease from hunting and gathering. And God provides. And people looked at them like they were crazy. And in a capitalistic culture where if you don't work, you don't make more money, and still to this day, Sabbath, you put down your phone. It was unthinkable that they'd have to cease from labor and they'd have to trust. No other God could accomplish this. I would commend that we need, we don't need more rules and rituals. But I, do, I would say that we need more practices and more, uh, more reminders. Every week when we gather, we remind ourselves this at Refuge. The reason we gather is we tell this story over and over and over again. Why? Because we're quick to forget. We're quick to go out tomorrow morning and say, my hope is in money. And I got to have, I got to make the money. So we gather every week to remind ourselves, money, what class? Perfect. Money cannot and will not save us. And we need that liturgy every week. Because, because when the transmission goes out, you're like, that's nice, but money will save me. Right? We are marketed to in our day. We are filled with reminders every day. The liturgy of consumerism every day. Material success, self-indulgence, all of this stuff. Consumerism, we are marketed like crazy uh, and that all of time and history is about me. Um, and uh, it's graduation weekend. My son graduated yesterday. I can't tell you how proud I uh, am of this kid. Oh, he blew me away. Um, and uh, and he, then he went to project graduation last night, so he's totally out of it right now. Um, but he graduated yesterday, and it's graduation season. And I love graduation season. It's, it's awesome. But if you had to go to any graduation ceremony ever in your life, you've probably heard these things. Not just graduation ceremonies, right? Chase after your dreams. You work hard and you will accomplish your dreams. And I, do you know how privileged that is? Chase after your dreams, right? Everybody wants to be successful. Everybody wants to have fame and fortune. Nobody wants to sweep the floor. Nobody wants to serve. Martin Luther King said anybody can be great because anybody can serve. But in our culture, nobody talks about that. In fact, we talk about serving, serving your neighbors so that you can get these points so that we can award you a, an award in front of everybody. And then post it on YouTube. And everybody will see how great you are. Jesus came for the poor, the outsider, the marginalized. And we need reminding and we need to practice often that we, we are poor in spirit. We are desperate. That's when we met Jesus. He didn't love us when we had our crap together. He loved us in our outsidedness, lest we forget 
lest we forget and experience the grace and mercy of Jesus and then show none of it. We need these practices and these reminders over and over and over that God not only wants to demonstrate his love is for the desperate to us, but also through us. Something you'll see in each one of these feasts is this over and over and over again. As God has done for you, so you are to do and be for those around you. And when we practice this, it becomes, we feel less threatened by people that might disagree with us and more satisfied in what Christ has done. There's a couple other holidays that are not mentioned here. Uh, Hanukkah, uh, Purim, that's a fun one. We're not going to talk about it, but it's a fun one. I encourage you to, to look it up. And uh, one day I may give you uh, one rabbi's interpretation of Purim. That um, has to do with Esther. Uh, and then the one that takes place right after Sukkot, right at the, uh, uh, the Feast of Booths, is called Shemini Atzirat. Uh, at it's celebrated at the end of the annual reading of the Torah. Every year they will... Uh, uh, especially in the Orthodox tradition, they will gather together and they will finish reading the Torah. And it's a way to honor people in the church that have served well and been faithful over the year that they get to read a portion of the end of the Torah. And then you know what they do after they finish reading the Torah. They go right back to the beginning. They go right back to Genesis. Here's what I love about this. Western thought, we're very linear, right? We're very much about everything has to progress but here's the reality. I believe that there's a greater joy and a greater maturity that comes not when we keep moving forward, but if we keep moving deeper. Several years ago, uh, a few guys, we went through this book called The Shepherd's Life. And it's not a Christian book at all. It's, actually, it's about actual shepherds. It had mixed reviews. Looking at you, Mike, fine. Which I still hope to win him over one day. But anyway, um, one of the things he talks about being a shepherd, he is a modern-day shepherd in, in England, and he, he talks about shepherding in the Lake, Lake District. And one of the narratives that he shared is the land in the Lake District. Uh, but he also shares about how the seasons impact what it is to shepherd. And so the fall is when the lambs go to market, when you're buying and selling, it's the moneymaker, it's exciting, there's lots of action and productivity, and all the work of the year leads up to the fall. And then in the winter, you're just trying to keep sheep alive. You never know when a blizzard could come in and take over. And, and the work, there's not more work to do. It's just everything takes longer, and it's hard, and it's painful. And then uh, in the spring, the spring is new life. It's when the ewes are giving birth to the lambs. And so it's crazy, and it's, and it's hectic, and you never know when it's going to happen. It's all hands on deck, but it's exciting, and there's action, and you see birth and life and all of this stuff taking place. And then the summer, the summer is a bit more relaxed. The, the, the uh, sheep can kind of take care of themselves. Um, you have time to do some of the things that you've neglected over the years. So if the fence needs to be repaired or you need to put a new roof on the barn or whatever, you have a little bit more time to do that. It's a little bit more relaxed. And so we read through this book and we kind of gave an overview of the seasons. And the first question that was asked, the gentleman asked, all right, so how do we arrange our lives in such a way where, it's, where we get to summer, where it's always summer? And I said, I think that might be the exact wrong question. But it's the question we ask, isn't it? I mean, if we're honest, in kind of our consumeristic culture, that's what we want. 
How do, we, how do we arrange our lives in such a way? How do we make enough money, get the promotion, get the graduate, get the degree, get whatever, get the kids out of the house? I saw a meme the other day that adult, adulting is, is um, saying, after we get this done, then it's going to clear up, and we keep telling ourselves that over and over and over again until we die, <laughs> right? Um, next week, everything's going to be good. Uh, and, and we kind of, we look at that to arrange our lives in such a way that if we get to this point, then... Then we'll be in summer. And the people that live in summer, are, they're called tourists. And following Jesus is not built for tourists. And when tourists would come up to the Lake District and outprice the people that have lived there and grown up there and they can't afford to live there anymore, they'll come and they think the sheep are the coolest thing ever until they can't get to the lake and the sheep are in the middle of the road. And then it's get your stinking sheep out of the way. And he would read these books about people that have written about the land and, and how beautiful and majestic the land is. And he'll read these books. The author of this one reads these books, and he's like, I wonder if any of these people have actually been here after Labor Day. He tells these stories, which I think are, are true to life, these seasons. Um, every year brings every season. I don't know if you've noticed that. Following Jesus is not about getting to a point where all of a sudden things are easy. When you follow Jesus, there are going to be seasons that are great and productive and wonderful. There are going to be seasons where it's like you kind of are scared to like take a step because it's going to be nice and it's going to be a little relaxing and things, have, things are going well. There's going to be times and seasons where there's new life and it's excitement and you can see fruit bursting forth from the trees and then there's going to be seasons that are just and anguishing and filled with lament and grief. And so my hope is that as we practice these feasts and festivals, we don't practice this progression until we get out of the hard stuff, but we practice often remembering and feasting every year, in every season, the goodness and provision and love of God made known through the work of Jesus. What they teach us about God, what they teach us about each other, what they teach us about our, our lives and who we are to be to the world around us. So we're going to have resources on the app for how to practice these. I hope GCs will have um, some books available. Uh, and our, I don't expect you to go through and like start practicing every one of these feasts, but to maybe even develop a certain liturgy. I would dare you over the next year to try to work on a practice of Sabbath. Just that alone will be life-changing. The goal is not for us to learn just these theological truths, but to actually see them revealed uh, in, our, in our regular weekly and annual practices of life. That our desires begin to change and continue to change from just getting past the hard stuff uh, to being tourists to actually needing God and needing one another. Our goal is to become a needy people. Um, so here's your assignment for this week. Read Leviticus 23. Leviticus is in the Old Testament. If you have to, uh, if you have to look in the, if you have to look in the um, table of contents, index, whatever it's called, 
Uh, most Bibles have one, or you can just Google it. Uh, read through each of these feasts. Kind of prepare yourself as we're getting ready to go through these. Google some of the feasts. That would be a great distraction from all the other news sites. And what, what's practiced on these and what's uh, done with that. We're going to have resources on the app. Uh, we're going to have some ways for you to practice this, either at home or with your, within your community. Um, and uh, we'll even have some uh, stuff hopefully on YouTube. And then we'll learn how to practice these together and encourage one another uh, as we grow in our need for Jesus and for one another. All right? Let me pray. Thank you, Jesus, that this is not... You, when you make yourself known, you make it known in so many ways that I think we take for granted. We sit here every day and look for signs and wonders of what should I do here, what should I do, what should I do? And you have made yourself known in every season, in every way that we, uh, for me, that I fail to practice and see. When I complain about being so tired and you go, hey, Trey, here's a cool thing that I actually did at the very beginning. I gave you a day of rest. Not just physical, but emotional and mental. These are your good gifts to us. So I pray this summer we would learn that these would be interesting, they'd be fascinating, maybe they'd drive us into Scripture to see how these play out, but also that we would begin to practice these as people. Maybe not every feast and festival exactly as it's written, but just commemorating and remembering your provision, your goodness, your atonement, the fact that you stand over all things, that you are good and you love and forgive and continue to bear with your people. Thank you for your word where you make yourself known. And we ask that it would uh, permeate our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name, amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.